Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden where we are putting together the history of this Scandinavian country one episode at a time. My name is Elsa and my name is Chris. This week we will continue on after the dramatic meeting at Kalmar in the last episode and move forward as one Nordic Union, the Kalmar Union, makes its first baby steps as a political entity. But before we go into that, it's time for the Swedish phrase of the week, and this one is brought to us by our regular contributor, Magnus. So what did he send us this time? Well, this time it was lap på And that translates to English as a note on the hatch, or the note on the hatch, which in itself doesn't really say much. I think this requires a bit more of an explanation. Yeah, it means that an event is sold out. So say that tickets to a game are sold out or there are no more seats available at any given venue. It derives from how quite literally people used to just put a note up that said sold out or something like that on the hatch or the door to the little ticket booth or kiosk where they were selling tickets from. You can imagine one of those little booths at like an old cinema or something like that where there was a person sitting behind a window selling tickets on the day and when they had no more tickets they just shut the hatch or the window and put up the note. In some places this continues today, uh, or in some form, because outside Stamford Bridge, Chelsea's football stadium in London, they have a sign which says next home match and then it will either say tickets available or sold out posted along the bottom underneath it. So it's referencing one of these old lap or look gun. Uh, no hatch, but at least there's a sign. Exactly. So that's where the phrase comes from. You maybe didn't even have to read the note. You just knew that if there was a note up on the hatch it meant that the event was sold out. Or maybe if you read the note, it said, getting more tickets in five minutes, wait there. (laughs) Maybe, and then you lost out. Either way, it then became a phrase and it's travelled with us into the digital age where we no longer maybe buy tickets from people in booths with hatches mainly, but instead do it online. But in Swedish, we still refer to that figurative note on the figurative hatch anyway. Although we were talking to your mum today and she didn't recognise it as a phrase. So maybe it's not a South Sweden type thing. No, maybe not. Or yeah, it's odd with languages. I wasn't familiar with this either, I must say, before Magnus sent it to us. But it seems to be something that people say. But yeah, like you said, maybe just not down South. Yeah, which makes it a good reason to send in your own Swedish phrases if we haven't covered one and you think there's a good one out there. But now, back to the newly formed Kalmar Union. We've seen over the past few episodes how Margareta has been able to strengthen her power and her dynasty's position, plus the role of the crown. When Eric was crowned as the king of this formal union, it was seen as a culmination of Margareta's rise to power, because she's still in control behind the scenes. Luckily for them both, it's also a strengthening of their position against outside enemies, like the pirates known as the Vitali brothers, the Hanseatic League, and the Mecklenburgs, who are still skulking around back home. But it wasn't just good news for the two rulers. The nobility's interest, at least part of them, were secured too, mainly through the idea that each country would keep their own domestic law and council, I called it the Three Musketeers principle, as they were going to have this one-for-all, all-for-one system going on against outside enemies. But they would also get to do basically what they wanted at home. Anyway, what's next? 
we're still in the summer of 1397 and everyone starts setting off home, relatively content with themselves. <laughs> Maybe even that one Norwegian bishop who just turned up for fun on his first day of work. He was off onwards to Orkney. Well, everyone apart from the perfectionist that Margareta is, of course, she's naturally still looking at the map hanging from the wall of her room, wondering if she'll ever get hold of Stockholm, and frowning as she's reminded of the treachery of her commander Sven Sturer on Gotland. Because remember, there's still a threat from Mecklenburg out there, despite this new union. Sven Sturer was undoubtedly on her mind. He was this commander who was supposed to be leading the Swedish troops in the Gotlandic countryside to make sure the Mecklenburg troops holding Visby didn't try to claim the whole island, but instead he was now on the side of the Germans, having turned the island over to the Mecklenburgs either before or just after a small skirmish. Ex-King Albert's son, Eric, was at least out of the picture, because he had died on Gotland shortly after leading a failed naval assault on the Hansa-controlled city of Stockholm. This meant that Sven Sture was now in command of the whole island for the Germans. There was also just one year left before Stockholm was due to be handed back to Sweden, unless Albert could somehow raise the money necessary to keep it. That probably wasn't going to happen, but one could never be sure if the Hansa, who was currently in this caretaker role, would actually give Stockholm back to Margareta especially now that the Kalmar Union is up and running and firmly an economic threat to the association of wealthy merchant towns that is the Hansa. So what would you do next if you were Margareta? Would you focus on Stockholm or try and get Gotland back or maybe do something completely different? Well, it is a bit of a pickle, really. You can't really try and take Stockholm back by force. It's only a year until you're due to get it back anyway, and the Hansa must be waiting for any excuse to keep it for themselves. And the Mecklenburgs failed to take it themselves just at the same time, so uh, that proves that it's a hard place to take anyway. Definitely. And Gotland is definitely a threat, not just to Swedish interests, but to all traders in the Baltic. However, the Vitali pirates, the few that remained on the island, were hanging out with the Mecklenburgs, and any attack on Gotland would thusly be a costly affair. Plus, Margareta herself isn't really rolling in cash at this point, despite her political success. Moreover, she has other things to worry about, as Albert is going to make an official complaint to the Hansa about breaches of the Lindholmen Treaty. So, shortly after the coronation of King Eric in Kalmar, King Albert, as he was still calling himself, at least somewhat legitimately, at least on paper, sent his chancellor and a nobleman called Helmish van Plessen to a meeting in Lübeck, at which they delivered a long list of complaints against Margareta and how she'd broken the treaty, according to them. The first complaint was a minor admin point about signing letters related to the treaty. The second was that some of Albert's men had been executed by Margareta. And the third was that the Danes were thinking of invading Gotland. <laughs> that's quite hilarious, as that's literally what they have done themselves. They now hold all of Gotland when the treaty specifically said it should be shared. Yeah, so uh, accusing the Danes of trying to invade Gotland is pretty bold, especially when the Mecklenburgs have tried to take Stockholm too, so they don't really have a leg to stand on on this point. 
And the final point of their complaint, though, is the one that Albert's really quite rightly angry about, and it's something we mentioned in the last episode. This was that Margareta had a king crowned in Sweden and thereby robbed him of his royal title. Albert had the right to be called King of Sweden, at least until he forfeited on this Stockholm debt, but Margareta had pushed ahead anyway with the coronation of Eric. However, Albert should probably have chosen a more receptive audience for his complaints. The Hansa essentially laughed him away, saying if they were to give help against anyone, it ought to be against those who had harmed the merchants, and Albert knew well to whom they referred. And this is because, of course, the Vitaly brothers are still ensconced in Visby and on Gotland, attacking peaceful merchant shipping from the island that is run by the Mecklenburgs. So yeah, the Hansa essentially tell Albert to just go away. They did try and write a few letters to Margareta to convince her to, to try and see things from Albert's perspective, but nobody was going to listen to the old deposed king down in Mecklenburg. In fact, everyone was actually a bit distracted with another new player entering the game at 1398, at least in the Scandinavian part of the game. And that's because this is when Konrad von Juringen, Grand Master of the Teutonic Order, invaded. Scotland. What? So, someone else is invading Gotland now. Exactly. Whilst everybody's just chatting and talking about these various complaints from a treaty a couple of years ago, that was probably their reaction when uh, this guy just comes in and takes Gotland. And probably including some of the pirates had that reaction too. They weren't expecting this to happen. Now, the background to this move is a bit of a long story and can be quite confusing. Some people say Conrad took the island on his own accord because he was either getting fed up with the pirates or because, as we'll see, the Teutonic Order just liked rambling off and taking new land. Some say Margareta invited the Order to take the island for themselves as long as they just got rid of the pirates and the Mecklenburgs, or she offered a reward for them if they did so. And some others say Albert saw the writing on the wall and gave it to the Germans. Margareta giving away the island when at least half of it is rightfully hers doesn't really seem very Margareta-y to do. Albert giving the island away seems like it might be a plausible idea, seeing as he knew he was probably about to lose everything else. These German knights were also pretty busy elsewhere in Europe, as we'll see in a minute, so it seems a bit unlikely that they would poke the new Kalmar Union bear by taking a key island without asking first, whilst everything else was going on in their own back garden. Yeah, so there's a number of reasons uh, why this might be a thing, and uh, there's, it doesn't essentially doesn't really matter which one it is, but it's good to know that other people have different ideas. Yeah, I mean, whichever the reason, they're here, they're invading, they're going to stay. Exactly, but this is a good time to look at their back garden and what's going on. And this is one of the occasions in the research where I went down one of those really interesting and irresistible rabbit holes. And in the episode, this is the part where I normally say, we're not a history of Denmark, Norway, Germany, Novgorod, Teutonic Order podcast, and then summarize a whole bunch of hours of research in just a few sentences. Uh, but seeing as this is the last regular episode of 2022, uh, spoilers, the Christmas Day episode will be slightly different, uh, I allowed myself to indulge in this bit of a segue. So for now, let's time to say hello to the History of the Teutonic Order, Lithuania, Prussia, and Poland podcast. 
Just one question. Does this mean that we have to do a Polish, German and Lithuanian phrase of the week as well? Uh, not this time, but uh, we'll see what happens in the future, maybe. But what we are going to do is we're going to go on a bit of a journey to see what this Teutonic Order is, what their goals are, and how they've been shaping the geopolitical map on the other side of the Baltic Sea over in Poland, Germany, Prussia, and the Baltics. And I promise you this is necessary and it's going to be a lot of fun and a good summary And uh, because these guys are going to be around in the story for a bit. It definitely is. But where do we start? Well, we could start in 1191. <laughs> Sounds just like a Ray and Cam podcast. You know, they started their Renaissance show with looking at Constantine the Great. <laughs> Don't worry, we won't be spending 20 episodes on just this introduction. Uh, maybe 20 minutes, but not 20 episodes. Uh, now, the Teutonic Order, known as the German Order, or the Tiska Orden in Swedish, was formed in the year 1191 in Acre by German merchants from Bremen and Lübeck, Acre being down in the Middle East today. So it sounds like they were some Hansa guys who just got massively lost. That's essentially true. Now, Acre at this time is, of course, in the Holy Land, and it was captured by Guy of Jerusalem during the Third Crusade. And that's the one famous for having Saladin as the leader of the Muslim side. Now, after the capture of Acre, these Germans took over a hospital in the city to take care of the sick people there, and first just called themselves a hospital of the German House of St. Mary, but soon became known as the Order of Brothers of the German House of St. Mary in Jerusalem, or to their German friends, Order der Bruder von Deutschen Haus in der Heiligen Maria in Jerusalem. Wow, that's a bit of a mouthful in any language, really. The Teutonic bit of their name, the Teutonic Order, that comes from the Latin word mentioning the German origins of the order. Teutonicorum, maybe? My Latin isn't very good? We'll save you the full name in Latin. But either way, history and we will call them the Teutonic Order or the Teutonic Knights at least in English. Yeah, it's weird. Pretty much every other language calls them the German order, but English takes the Latin name for some reason. You guys like to be fancy. The order soon gets papal approval and starts to play a quite important role in the Crusader states, getting official tasks like controlling the port tolls of Acre. That's a pretty big deal, considering the amount of trade involved. They probably shared some of this economic knowledge with their fellow German brothers back up in Lübeck and Bremen. Now, as we know, the Crusades didn't end well for the Christian forces, who were eventually defeated and forced out of the Middle East. And the German order and the Teutonic Knights left with them, and first moved to Transylvania, of all places, in the start of the 1200s, to help defend the locals there and defend the southeastern borders of Hungary. That didn't last very long, though, as the knights were expelled by King Andrew II of Hungary in 1225 after basically just going off on their own and attempting to build their own kingdom within Transylvania and taking land from the locals. That's a real way to annoy your hosts. Just claim part of the country for yourselves. Like you go and stay with your friend and then you just claim their living room as your own flat. And put up your own flag. After a bit of political overreach, they turned their attention elsewhere and notably up to Prussia. Now, Prussia was in a bit of a bad way. 
a local Polish duke, Duke Conrad, had bitten off more than he could chew by trying to conquer local pagans in what the Pope dubbed the Prussian Crusade. This didn't go very well, and a local order of German knights they had recruited, they were almost completely destroyed as pagan counterattacks made their way all the way into Polish territory. And so it was the Teutonic knights who came riding to the rescue. They helped fight back and reclaim some Polish lands, and later in 1230 they teamed up with this local Duke Comrade for another major campaign which they launched against Prussia and fellow pagan area Lithuania. They're now well and truly knight-focused, certainly not just a mobile hospital for merchants at this point. The Duke was clearly aware that it was the might of the Teutonic Order which was helping him secure his lands, and so he'd signed a treaty with the Order, which was later backed up by the Pope, meaning that the Order were given ownership of some land in Poland which they'd helped to defend, and would be allowed to keep for themselves whatever land they could claim in the crusade against the Prussians. So he's saying if we just give them a little bit, maybe they won't try and take all of Poland. I mean, this is a pretty huge deal, just like how the Hansa were beginning to take steps into becoming a sort of pseudo-state, the Teutonic Order is becoming a literal state, answerable only to the Pope. The Grand Master had received promises from Duke Conrad and the Pope in 1230, but kept asking for it in writing, which he got in 1234. Probably a wise plan in this age. But yeah, this means the Teutonic Knights have got it written on paper that whatever land they take in Prussia can be theirs. And so, unsurprisingly, they build a huge army and 10,000 soldiers crossed into Prussia in 1233. And it was quite successful. One battlefield was called the Field of the Dead by the locals after the Polish and German troops had massacred their Prussian enemies by this river. Like any alliance, the Polish and German partnership had its ups and downs, but we don't have time to go into that, unfortunately. In the 1230s, they had more joint successes, but ended up arguing over who would receive what and which lands they would take. The papal legate attached to the Crusades ended up giving two-thirds of the captured lands to the Teutonic Order. Remember that small band of German knights the Poles had created at the start of the Crusade? Well, they were now absorbed into the Teutonic Knights, which infuriated Duke Conrad. They also took over control of the Sword Brothers, or the Livonian Order, another military order in Livonia, which is part of modern-day Latvia. This group had also been almost wiped out by the pagans of Lithuania in another battle, so the Germans sought to take control of another potentially rival group there too. Yeah, they're just sucking up other smaller groups of knights to increase their power even more. It's knights hoovering up other knights with a giant knight hoover. We mentioned these Livonian knights occasionally when talking about Novgorod and Swedes in part of the Baltic Sea, but now they are just part of the Teutonic Order, although they retain a lot of independence and autonomy as their own little knight group. Yeah, and they're still called the Livonian Order or the Sword Brothers, even though they're sort of being controlled, at least nominally, by the Teutonic Order. It is a bit confusing. Now, these Livonians got a bit cocky too, though, as they tried to take on Novgorod in 1242. They were destroyed in the Battle on the Ice on Lake Pipus, or Pipus, or Pipus, or something along those lines. This was the last time the Order would head out east to try and take on Novgorod, at least for the next century. And the Novgorod commander in this battle well, it was Alexander Nevsky. 
if you remember back to King Eric XI's time in Sweden, the one cruelly called the Lisp and the Lame, there was a Swedish expedition to Novgorod that was crushed at the Battle of the Neva, meaning the Russian commander got this Nevsky nickname. And, well, that's him. He's back two years later, and this time he's defeating Germans. Well, he was a competent commander then, for sure. After these setbacks, the order, all parts of it, focused on wrapping up things in Prussia and turning south and east to face Lithuania. That's because these pesky pagans are still holding out against Christianity. The campaign was extremely slow, with both sides building castles and forts and really digging in for the long term. Seasonal campaigns by the Christians, known as Reysa, were made against the Lithuanians, and knights travelled to the area each year to take part, with many coming from England and France to do it. Now it's time to fast forward a few years to the end of the 1200s, by which time the Prussians have been fully conquered and converted to Christianity, despite a number of bloody rebellions and revolts against Christian rule. This meant that full focus could now be turned on Lithuania. However, just like previously, the knights got a bit bored with just having one enemy to face each year. It's like, oh, what should I do in 1302? Uh, fight pagans in Lithuania. What should I do in 1303? Fight pagans in Lithuania. In 1306, they got involved in a complicated succession dispute in the Duchy of Pomerania, not Pomerania, where our King Eric is from. And this kicked off a war with Poland as well, as this was Polish territory and Poland's only access to the Baltic Sea. So naturally, by taking control of the duchy, they made themselves a true enemy of Poland and started to really annoy their neighbours. They were now attacking a fully Christian kingdom and behaving just like any other state would, they have abandoned their crusader roots and now just seem to want as much power as they could get. And this rather annoyed the Pope, who urged the Teutonic Order to settle this war. It took over 30 years, but eventually the war ended in 1343. Crucially, the Knights kept all the Baltic Sea territories, including Pomerelia and the important trading city of Gdansk. Great city, by the way, Gdansk. Uh, if you want to see a great example of a typical medieval Hansa port crane, just Google Gdansk crane. Uh, Gdansk is spelled G-D-A-N-S-K. And the current crane is based off the designs from the 1440s, even though it's a bit of a modern reconstruction because the original one was essentially destroyed in World War II. Um, but it's great, so do have a look for that crane. But yes, peace with Poland meant that everyone could now focus again on the real task at hand, killing pagans. And the Pope allegedly granted the Teutonic Order imperial privilege to conquer all of Lithuania and even Russia. And so with this in mind, it adds more spark to the War of Lithuania, which by now has been going on for nearly a hundred years. This war was especially brutal too. By this point, the entire border region between the two groups was an uninhabited wasteland. And it's not surprising when you hear the stories from both sides of this conflict. Yeah, I mean, it was common practice for Lithuanians to torture captured enemies and civilians alike. 
A chronicler from the Teutonic side said that they liked tying captured knights to their horses and having both of them burned alive. That's not cool for the horses and obviously the knights too, but it seems really unnecessary and wasteful to just burn a horse to death too. Why don't just use it in your own army? Yeah, what, the, what has the horse ever done to you? In an equally brutal fashion, sometimes a stake would be driven into the bodies of the knights and they would be flayed. Lithuanians practiced human sacrifice, uh, the hanging of widows, among other lovely things. This is obviously from Christian sources, so the knights might be exaggerating some of this, but it seems to be a devastating conflict on both sides. Both sides continued to build fortifications and defences with around 20 castles and forts along one stretch of the frontier river called the Neyman. The reason that the knights kept fighting Lithuania so hard was that an area called Samogitia was effectively splitting the German knights in two, with the Livonian order to the north and the main Teutonic knights area in Prussia and in areas around Poland. By taking this area, that meant they would be able to freely travel between the two locations. And so it's in this context that we get pretty close to the timeline we are in the podcast, and nearly there. But it's only just starting to get interesting. Let's turn our attention to Lithuanian domestic politics at the time, and two cousins called Jugela and Vitautas. Jugela is Grand Duke of Lithuania and is sharing power with his uncle, Kestutis, Vitautas' dad. An internal power struggle around the benefits of Christianity leads to the Lithuanian civil war that starts in 1381. Now this really needs its own podcast, so we'll only mention it briefly, but these two cousins don't really get on, and Jugela is quite pro-Christianity, so he enters into a secret treaty with the Teutonic Knights, letting them invade Lithuania if they just leave his part alone and only attack his cousin and uncle. Jugela and the knights are initially successful, and Uncle Kestutis is captured alongside Vitautus and then suspiciously dies in prison. Vitautus then escapes, flees to the knights, and convinces them to switch sides and attack Jugela. The war then has a bit of a break whilst all sides try and negotiate and figure out what's going on, but before long, war is back on. This continues for another year or so before Vitautus changes sides himself again and joins his cousin in attacking the knights again. This is insane. This sounds like one of the nightmares I have sometimes. Just everything's so messed up. Definitely. And so now the cousins are together, united against the knights, after a bit of fighting against each other to get to this point. Then something very interesting happens. A second union appears, although this is actually in 1386, so it happened 11 years before the Kalmar Union was created, but it's essentially the same time. This is because Jagela, after a period of long negotiations, is actually crowned King of Poland, and he keeps his title Grand Duke of Lithuania, so he's ruling over both. One of the conditions is he becomes Christian because he marries into a Polish princess's royal family. Now, this also meant that Lithuania becomes Christian too, and Europe's last pagan state was no more. Jagela was Europe's last pagan ruler too. This change also established this dynastic union between the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and the Kingdom of Poland, and during his reign, the Polish-Lithuanian state will become the largest Christian state in the world at this point. 
That's interesting. Presumably the knights aren't going to like the fact that their main enemy has now essentially taken control over their old rival, Poland. This also meant that much of the order's reason to exist had disappeared. They, of course, tried to push the claim that not everyone in Lithuania was now Christian and that Jugela's conversion was a scam. As such, knights from all over Europe participated in the Order's Rysen well into the 15th century, as the war against Lithuania just continues and continues. Yeah, no surprise there that the knights aren't just going to stop fighting. But what of Vitaltus? Well, as part of this deal, Jugela installed his brother and not his cousin as ruler of Lithuania, subservient to him, and this, of course, really annoys his cousin Vitaltus. And before long, Vitaltus was rebelling once again, kicking off the second Lithuanian civil war in the same decade. And what does Vitaltus do to increase his chances of victory? Well, he runs off to the knights and forms an alliance with them, just like he did during the first civil war. Vitaltus and the knights unsuccessfully besieged Vilnius in 1390, and over the next couple of years it became clear that neither side were going to achieve a quick victory, and so Jugela proposed a compromise. Vitaltus was tempted to accept, as he's now starting to suspect that the order wasn't actually interested in helping him, but was more likely wanting to destabilise Lithuania and eventually annex it for itself, which sounds like a very, very sensible assumption to make, knowing what we know about the order and their goals. Indeed. So the cousins come once more to an agreement in 1392. According to the treaty, Vitautas became the ruler of Lithuania with the title Grand Duke, but he also accepted that Jugela would have the title Supreme Duke and full rights to rule Lithuania. The reign of Vitautas the Great, as he became known, will mark the greatest territorial expansion of the Grand Duchy, and at the same time we see Konrad von Jungingen becoming Grand Master of the Teutonic Order in November 1393. This leads us almost up to their invasion of Gotland. But one last piece of news before that, and that is because of this Christianization of Lithuania, the Teutonic Order has to do some soul-searching, and it results in the best-named political entity ever being created, the Lizard Union. <laughs> what? <laughs> what in the world is that? Well, the Lizard Union was created in 1397, the year of the Kalmar Union's creation, by Prussian nobles in order to oppose how the order was running their local area. Its official public goal was to combat law and order problems in the area, but most people knew that in reality, it wanted to move their Kolmerland region from the Teutonic Order control and over to Poland. Now, we'll have to keep in touch with the Teutonic Order, the Lizard Union, and the Polish-Lithuanian politics in general as we move forward, as this is going to be an important part of the story from now on. Uh, a lot of people probably recognise the name the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and they're going to reoccur in the story for many, many years to come. But uh, right now, we should probably head back to Gotland and follow the German Order's invasion. Yes, we thought you just should have an idea of who this order is and how they operate, as it can be easy to see them as a Christian crusading order, but in reality, they were just power-hungry, land-grabbing knights at this point. Anyway, regardless of their reasoning, in 1398, the Teutonic Order decided to act and set sail from Danzig, heading to Gotland. This was a 
hefty invasion force. They had gathered 84 ships with around 4,000 men, 50 knights and 400 horses for this expedition led by none other than Grandmaster himself, Konrad von Jungingen. And we called it Danzig then, but that's actually Gdansk. The Danzig being the German name for it, Gdansk, which is the Polish name for it now. Yes. It was actually still in winter when they landed on this island in the middle of the Baltic Sea at Vestergaan, about 25 kilometres or 15 miles south of Lisby on the western side of the island. This distance actually proved to be a problem, as dragging their siege machines and by now cannons up to the city through the snow really slowed them down. This gave Sven Sturer plenty of time to think about what to do next, but also plenty of time for some of the pirates to escape. Uh, not all of them bothered to stick around to see what was going to happen and left as quickly as they could. Well, some sources say the pirates stayed around until the siege began, whilst some sources say they abandoned Sven Sture before the Germans even made it up to Visby. I guess that's the problem you have when your allies are pirates. Yeah. Because what have we established? Pirates gonna pirate. And that it doesn't include helping political uh, allies. It means running away and fighting another day. Pirates are just interested in pirating, not keeping constitutional control. The following siege lasted a few weeks before an agreement was made. The remaining pirates, if there were any, and the Mecklenburgs had two days to leave Gotland and they had to promise they would no longer target merchant shipping. The gates to Visby were opened and the German order took control of the city. That's a relatively quick ending then. The German order didn't take anything for granted after the victory, and so they put two Prussian admirals in command of a small fleet to make sure the Vitali brothers didn't return and try and make Visby their base of operations once again. Because the general anti-piracy stance that they're following was pretty much followed by every city in the region at this point, so a lot of the pirates had to end their activities and some of them went home. But of course, as also said, not all of them will do this. Sven Sturer actually left and accompanied some of the pirates north. There were still a few pirate bases left in the north on both sides of the Bay of Bothnia, some in Sweden and some in Finland. A key castle was Orbu Castle in Finland, as well as some locations they had in Helsingland and Norland over on the Swedish side. So yeah, Sven Sture headed up there as Margareta tried to get the Germans to just give her control of Gotland. It was like, great, you kicked the Mecklenburgs out, can Gotland be mine now? But Conrad was in no mood to give this up, considering how important Visby was to shipping and trade in the Baltic Sea. Actually, he won't be giving it up anytime soon. So yeah, there's now Germans in complete control of Gotland. And whilst this is important, Margareta had something more important to think about anyway. By the time it had reached August 1398, her attention was now fully on the fact it was time for Albert to either pay up or forfeit his crown and Stockholm. Margareta calls the Hansa to an urgent conference in Copenhagen to discuss this. The Hansa send a message to Albert and says that unless he coughs up the 60,000 marks by the 24th of August, they'd have no choice but to give Margareta the keys to the Swedish capital and cross his name off the list of Swedish kings. Albert gives a pretty weak reply, saying that he is waiting to get some money from France and hope that he can pay soon. 
I think we've all seen enough gangster films to know what the likely response is when you say, can I pay later? Yeah, indeed. The Hansa say they have no choice, but the matter was now closed. The Lubeck Chronicle says, Since they were unable to get any answer from him, they kept their promise as pious people and surrendered the town and the castle to the Queen the following day of St. Michael, the 29th of September. Thus, King Albert lost his kingdom. Nice and concise, and now things are really truly over for Albert. He can no longer claim any ownership of Stockholm, and the Swedish crown is officially gone too. Not that he could really claim that any longer either. Yeah, there seems to be nothing stopping Erik and Margareta. The Hansa agreed to hand over the keys of Stockholm to Margareta, but they would really appreciate it if they could have their trade privileges reconfirmed in the three Scandinavian kingdoms first. Some say that Margareta said that she would only give that to them if they ensured Albert would be removed from the picture, but either way, both sides are happy when Margareta agrees and the Kalmar Union ensures that the Hansa will enjoy full trade rights throughout the Three Kingdoms. So, hooray! Everyone's happy! Except Albert. Except Albert, who is back to being plain old Duke Albert III of Mecklenburg at this point. Margareta waited for no man and rode her horse through the gates of Stockholm in what must have been an impressive sight. This was highly symbolic and she made sure that everyone knew that this meant that Stockholm was no longer a German-run merchant town but a part of the United Kalmar Union. As such, Margareta also starts thinking about monetary reform a move away from using German currency, but we'll have to talk about that another time. Because Sven Sture was still out there getting up to stuff. He was, and Margareta realises it's probably best to strike whilst the iron was hot and chase down these pirates with her forces. And this seemed to be the right tactic, as before long the pirates agreed to a ceasefire, and in 1399 at Easter, the last castle under their control, the one in Orbu in Finland, was handed over to Margareta. And amazingly, not only did Sven Sturer offer to switch back sides to Margareta, but Margareta accepted. And to further shock everyone else, a few years later, Sven Sturer becomes a Swedish knight. <laughs> I mean, this guy has swapped sides so many times. He's the most shape-shifting character I think we've come across in Swedish history. And he's super lucky because pretty much everyone else in history would have just thrown him off a cliff or stabbed him to death. So yeah. he becomes a knight. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I don't know how many lucky escapes this guy has had. Now, just before we end this episode, we need to mention one other small development. Right before Orbu Castle is returned, some other castles in Finland were also returned to Margrethe's control. That's because Bo Jonsson Grip's son had managed to keep hold of them throughout this whole chaotic period, probably because he was trying to keep low over in Finland and not rock the boat too much. Because remember, there was this whole big shenanigans over Bo Jonsson Grip's estate and who got which castles and everything like that. His son got a few of them in Finland and, yeah, probably just wanted to lay low there for a while. 
But by now, Margareta was truly mopping up and probably Bouillon's and Grip's son realised that he wouldn't be able to hide in the corner for much longer. In return for his arguably sensible approach, he received Stegholm County as a payment for his generosity in giving back these Finnish castles. Stegholm being, by the way, on the east coast of Sweden, just on the other side of the water from Gotland. Now, that does seem like a very sensible move by Bu Jonsson Grip's son, so congratulations for him. Now, that's probably enough history for one day, to be honest. Uh, we'll be back next time on Christmas Day with a bit of a special episode, and then return on 8th of January for the next regular episode. But before we go, it's time to say hello to Sebastian, who got in touch to say he was listening from Kung Elv, a place we've mentioned a few times now on the podcast out on the west coast of Sweden. He let us know that his friend works in the city archives of Kung Elv and sent us some pictures of the amazing original letter establishing the privileges of the nearby city of Kungahella, which was amazing to see. So I'm sure we'll use that later on in the story. Thank you so much to Sebastian for sending us that, and it was really great. Thank you so much. And thank you to your friend, too. Yeah, and what was funny was that Sebastian got in touch a few days after we had been right past Kungälv on the way up to Trollhättan, uh, another town in the area. On the way, we even stopped off in Lödöse, which is now a tiny village with not much there. But back in the day, it was one of the hubs of Swedish history, and we've mentioned it a few times in the podcast so far, so listeners might recognise the name. Yeah, um, annoyingly, the Lördöse Museum was closed because it was a Monday, a day when lots of museums are closed in Sweden, annoyingly, so we couldn't go in and see any of the sort of preserved history. But we walked around the village a bit and saw the river where the medieval Swedes would have travelled up and down and which represented Sweden's most westernly point for many years. This was because Denmark and Norway reached each other on what is now modern-day Sweden's west coast, and that meant that Sweden didn't have any direct access access to the North Sea from the land. They had to go down this long river to get there. And uh, we mentioned Lodosa when Birja Jarl met the Norwegian king Håkon there in 1249, for example. So we had to get off the bus and at least walk around for half an hour, even if there wasn't uh, pretty much anything there worth seeing. Yeah, indeed. It was fun to see, even though the museum was closed. Yeah, to be fair, there would have been more stuff to see if the museum was open. Yeah. One final thing before we go, Spotify have been releasing some statistics about 2022 and we're apparently the most listened to podcast for 156 fans on Spotify and in the top 10 for over a thousand of you. So if you listen to us on Spotify, thank you so much for that. But wherever you listen to us, once again, Thank you so much for listening and for getting in touch like Sebastian did. It really means a lot to us. It definitely does. And we'll have a few more messages to read out next time uh, during our special episode released on the 25th of December, Christmas Day. The the real Christmas Day, if you're from uh, the UK, not this fake Christmas Day that they have on the 24th in Sweden. Or, you know, the day after the real Christmas Day, if you're from Scandinavia. Germany and uh, places, but we'll actually cover that in the next episode, yeah. so we'll, uh, we'll we'll leave it to future Chris and future Orsa to talk about that. 
As always, if you wanted to get in touch like Sebastian, you can message us on Facebook or Twitter, just search for the podcast name, or email us on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. Yeah, and we have loads of fun things on our website too, a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com, including some family trees and cool maps. But until Christmas Day, it's time to say goodbye for now. Hey, Dawn. Goodbye. Hello and welcome to the Teutonic Order, Lithuania, Prussia and Poland History Podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm your other host, Elsa. Before we continue the adventures of cousins Jagela and Vitaltus, it's time for our phrase of the week. And this time it's Lithuanian. Yay! What do we have today? Well, today's phrase is palikti ant lido, which means leave someone on the ice. <laughs> That sounds a bit like the Swedish phrase, no cow on the ice. <laughs> yeah, a bit, but it actually means to abandon someone or leave someone behind. So if you're running for the bus and don't care that grandma can't run and won't make it, you're leaving her on the ice. So uh, that was great. I hope my pronunciation wasn't too bad because, uh, to be honest, I don't know any Lithuanian. I just had to Google Lithuanian phrases. <gasps> yeah, we're probably not qualified to do a history of Lithuania. Yeah, I mean, whichever the reason, they're here, they're invading, they're gonna party it up. <laughs> they're gonna stay, yeah. <laughs> they're here, they're invading, they're gonna stay. A local Polish duke, Duke Conrad, was bitten off. <laughs> was bitten off. <laughs> bitten off by like a snake or it something. It was bitten off. <laughs> yeah.